This week, we're taking issue with party politics. Literally, party politics. We'll talk about the GOP launching an impeachment inquiry into President Biden and the invitation that was not at City Hall. Plus, Nikki Haley picks up a big-time endorsement and misinformation in the 2024 election. I'm Corey Smith. I'm Sue O'Connell. And this is Taking Issue. Our nation was born here, not with a whimper, but with a spark of revolution. One more indictment, and this election is closed out. That's what democracy is. It's a choice of the people, by the people, and for the people. Hello and welcome to another edition of Taking Issue. I'm joined, as always, by NBC10 Boston political commentator and analyst Sue O'Connell. If you missed last week's show, Matt not here because he is one week into fatherhood. Yes. So, again, <laughs> I'm sure he's knee deep in excrement. Let's yeah, that's be let's be honest. Honest. And crying. We prepared <laughs> him for the crying. best we could, though. Uh, all right, this week we're going to start at City Hall because just in time for the end of the year, they had to spark one more controversy. Gotta love Boston, Corey. Down at City Hall. So here's, here's what happened. Um, for the last many years, there has been an electeds of color holiday party for black and brown folks at City Hall to come together and, and celebrate the holiday season. The invitation this year was sent to everybody on the Boston City Council. And if you haven't heard, not everybody on the Boston City Council is a person of color. Well. The staffer from the mayor's office then rescinded the invitation and said, oh, hey, by the way, not everybody is invited to this party. Um, that obviously got social media churning and doing what it normally does and, and folks calling this uh, an all-white party. Uh, I think I saw one headline in some publication that said, no whites Christmas, um, which, I mean, <laughs> well, it's just pretty, kinda, pretty good for headline writing. writing. Uh, but, Sue, for, for yeah. folks who don't know, th this has been something that's been going on for a long time without any sort of problem before this year. Right, and, and it's at least 10 years, mm -hmm. right? And the, the reality here is that until 1983, the city council was all white anyway, so every party was an all-whites party, uh, and no people of color were there. So, uh, and at only any given moment in this state, when elected officials gather for their holiday year-end festivities, most of the people there are going to be white, and that's exactly the reason why uh, people who belong to groups that aren't in the majority, like women, LGBTQ people, black and brown people, disabled people, however you want to group folks who are not in the majority, like to get together uh, without the critical eye of the majority on them to celebrate, network, and just be in their own space. And, you know, it is absolutely a political error. It's a, it's a self-inflicted error. Mm -hmm. uh, the staffer I'm, I feel bad for who sent this out and then rescinded it, you know, I probably would have left the invitation yeah, out there. Yeah, kind of one of those where you got to, you know, kind of take your medicine yep. and say, all right, This is what happened, and, and, you know, probably they wouldn't come anyway, so you just have to deal with that. Instead, what we have now is this multi-day right-wing conservative story that Fox is airing, the Daily Mail has on, Twitter is like, or X is just having a, a, a lot of, uh, making a lot of hay with it, and it does lend itself to some funny headlines and stuff. Let's right. be, be fair about that. So a bad mistake from the administration, should have let it be. But at the same time, who cares? I mean, this is, uh, it's just really a ridiculous reaction. Um, again, no one was mad at Mayor Walsh when this party happened, or if it happened under Menino, not mad at him. And I think part of this reaction is we are now in the midterm mm -hmm. of Michelle Wu, 
is she going to run again two years out? We had the Save Our City fundraiser mm -hmm. that was going to happen out on the South Shore. Uh, I don't think a lot of people of color were going to that. We didn't call that an all-white fundraiser. Uh, it turned out it was supposed to be for former Mayor uh, Ray Flynn's birthday. Some were saying they were launching it. That, if you remember, that email went out inadvertently yeah. as well. Uh, so let's just say for 2024, let's check our emails before we send them. Yeah. And uh, let's understand that we don't live in a world yet where uh, people who are not in the majority or are not treated equitably feel like uh, they shouldn't have their own safe space. Right, from right. I think, I think that, that for me was sort of the reaction that really just kind of surprised me. Like it's 20, at the end of 2023, shock horror, black and brown folks sometimes just want to be by themselves. Okay. Um, that, 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 is just, that is just how it is. Uh, so I guess this claim that this was racism or reverse discrimination or whatever kind of just doesn't really hold water with me. But I, I will say this is, this is sort of the racial divide that we've seen on council sort of rearing its ugly head. Um, if, 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 if it was all kumbaya and, and rainbows and unicorns down at City Hall, um, I think something like this kind of just goes by the wayside, but because we have seen these sort of racial and generational divisions on the Boston City Council, stuff like this is going to rise to the surface. Credit to Mayor Michelle Wu for, for answering questions yeah. about it. Um, but I, you know, Ricardo Arroyo in an interview that, that he did with us and other stations just sort of said this is, you know, a big, uh, a nothing burger, if you will. Yeah. Um, but it, it, but it's, people are ginning it up to get attention in. As you can see, I've got microphones in front of my face. So, so here we are. Um, but yeah, it's not, not a good look. I think that that's sort of the bottom line here. It, it's not a good look for, for, for the staffer for rescinding the invitation. Or for Boston. And it's not a good look because of the invitation. It's like, you know, we continually come up against the rooted and justifiable allegation that we are racist. And then as soon as something like this happens, which was a mistake, people react in a way that suddenly makes it a complete racial divide, mm. which feeds into the legitimate um, allegation that we're a racist city. You can't just let it be. You can't just say, yep, black and brown people are having a holiday party and I'm not going without making it into a big deal. I mean, I told you earlier today, I learned this lesson in 1981 at Emerson College, at the old Emerson College, not the new Emerson College, where I wanted to go down and see my friends in the Black Student Union, you know, and I went downstairs and walked in like, we didn't have the word ally then, but I'm yeah. like, hey, here, here I am, Let's, what are you doing, what's going on, you guys hanging out, you got a TV, that's great. And one of my friends there said, y you can leave, Sue. Yeah. <laughs> and I went, oh, okay, yeah. and I did, and my feelings weren't hurt, yeah. still my friends, and I got the lesson of, you know, you need your own space sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think that's very important. And plus, You're not going to ask me to leave now, are yeah. you? No, 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 no. <laughs> well, what's funny is, you know, you hear, you hear um, some, some white folks out there, you know, they make the joke, oh, am I invited to the cookout? The cookout being a, a black party that because I am an ally or right. because I am, right. you know, a, a certain level of cool, no. I, I get invited to it. So, yeah. you know, it just, let's, let's just take all these things for, for, for what they are. I don't think there were any ill intentions involved at all but just an unfortunate uh, situation for the folks down at City Hall. But hey, enjoy the holiday party. Um, who knows, maybe something will come out of one of these holiday parties. We'll, we'll see. Um, all right, let's talk about the presidential race. A um, big mystery finally solved. Uh, we've been talking to Governor Sununu up in New Hampshire about who he was going to endorse in the GOP primary. Well, he has chosen his chosen candidate, uh, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. Is his choice to be the next president 
of the United States. Um, surprised by his endorsement of, of Haley over, I guess, DeSantis would have been the only, maybe, oh, I guess maybe Chris Christie before DeSantis and then Haley. Yeah, I, I'm not surprised because I think it makes a lot of practical sense. Uh, and again, this is probably a bigger national endorsement than it is for, uh, for New Hampshire. Um, and usually I think endorsements don't matter that much, but I think in this race, it does, and I'll say this now, and I'm going to keep saying it uh, into the as we go through 2024. Everything is so upside down right now mm -hmm. between having a former president who didn't win running, having a former president who's the leading candidate who has been indicted over 90 times, criminally and civilly, uh, convicted of uh, fraud and waiting for punishment on that, and then having a president who said he would run one term, who may be the oldest president uh, running. Um, all of this divisiveness and craziness has led us to be uh, cautious and it's difficult to predict what's going to happen or make projections. Having said all that, usually uh, endorsements don't matter, but you've got people like Liz Cheney and Mitt Romney, prominent Republicans, saying they don't want to endorse someone because their endorsement, now these used to be standard bearers of the party, would be the kiss of death for the candidate. So emerges Sununu, who is... Um, a moderate, but has been friendly to everyone, uh, and I think his endorsement of Nikki Haley is going to boost her both nationally and will have an impact, I think, in New Hampshire. Of course, Governor Sununu, who is no fan of Donald Trump, he has been on the record, he has been very public about his uh, dislike for Donald Trump, the man and the politician. He's called him a loser uh, time and time again. I guess my question is, what does this mean for the Haley campaign moving forward? Because we have seen her, maybe struggle is the wrong word, we have seen her hesitant to go after Donald Trump from a, a policy standpoint. She's sort of landed on this critique of he's, uh, you know, chaos tends to follow him wherever he goes. I think it's time for a new beginning for our party and the country. I do wonder if because she has now somebody on her side and a Governor Sununu who is very much outspoken in his criticism of Donald Trump, if she's going to let him, in New Hampshire at least, mm -hmm. continue to be that attack dog for her as a surrogate to allow her to sort of stay above the fray, not alienate the MAGA base, and hopefully use that to, to really grab a hold and maintain that second place. I think overtaking Trump is its own hill to climb. Mm -hmm. But do you think she this will help her maybe strike that balance between creating the difference and the distinction between her and the former president, but also not alienating the MAGA base that if she were to be the candidate, she would ultimately need to win the White House. Yeah, I think it does because she's got the Koch brother money that we talked about, I think, last episode. Mm -hmm. So there's a PAC now that's spending a lot of money. They're also very anti-Trump, so they can just attack, attack, attack Trump and elevate uh, Nikki Haley. Sununu can do the same. As soon as she can find... Um, you know, as much as Sununu was tracking, attacking Trump, he doesn't hold the same enmity in the hearts of the MAGA folks uh, that a Romney and a Liz Cheney does. So the more surrogates she can find who can attack Trump that aren't hated by the MAGA base, uh, the better off she's going to be. Does he have national pull? Obviously, he's going to make headlines yep. in New Hampshire. People listen to him in New Hampshire. 
is he one of the more well-known Republican governors across the country to where this will matter beyond the New Hampshire primary? I think within the Republican circles, yes, he is. You know, his dad was also mm -hmm. governor, so there's there's a, a dynasty that's happening in New Hampshire with this new new name. So a respected family, respected Republicans. Uh, he may not have the big clout that maybe a Charlie Baker would have had, but at the same time, I think it's important. It signals to the 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 I say moderate within the Republican world, the moderate Republican that this is the candidate that you should pick, and I think that's going to help her en enormously. In the end, will it matter? Maybe not. Not in Which New end? Hampshire. The overall when this General is all election? said and done, GOP primary. When it comes down to her and Trump, will this make a difference? I think it could. I'm not at all counting Nikki Haley out. Uh, I, I don't think it's a done deal for Donald Trump at all, um, especially as more court appearances start ramping up for him. Uh, more problems, I'm sure, will follow him. Uh, and he, he continues, every time he talks now, the Biden campaign is leaping on it and taking advantage of it and amplifying what he says, the dictator remark, which they would have, I think, ignored a few months ago. Mm -hmm. They're now amplifying it. So Trump is going to be hit on all sides, and Nikki Haley's just going to be standing there. All right, we'll see what happens. We're, uh, what, just a couple weeks now? Yeah. From uh, Iowa. From Iowa and, and then, then New, New Hampshire. Hampshire. So looking forward to that. Uh, we're going to stick with the presidential race, but put it maybe a different spin on it. After everything we saw in 2016 with, with, with Russian troll farms and things like that, then in, in 2020, um, there are a lot of concerns that misinformation and disinformation will play a key role in the election, whether it's um, deep fakes of political figures saying things that they didn't actually say or misinformation spreading. We recently spoke with Dr. Joan Donovan um, she is a misinformation expert who was at Harvard but has since left that post and is now locked in a contentious legal battle. She filed a whistleblower complaint alleging that Harvard pushed her out of her job um, due to the university's relationship with Facebook and, and Meta. Um, we spoke to her ab about her whistleblower complaint um, and Harvard's reaction to it, but we also talked about what's coming down the pipe in 2024. Here is that conversation. You accuse Harvard of coordinating with Meta to stop your research on the Facebook files. Can you explain for us in a way that we'll yeah. understand what your argument is? Uh, essentially, I was uh, somewhat of a golden goose at Harvard. I had been brought in to run my own research program in December of 2018. At that point, I was uh, recruited from a very well-known nonprofit that was doing this kind of research. and. What Harvard wanted me to do was build a research lab and essentially continue the same work that I had been looking at. And I had been looking at very fringe groups online, you know, white supremacists, misogynists, uh, other groups of people that anti-Semitic people, people that have to hide who they are in order to get their message across. And our research had really been known for being cross-platform. However, in October of 2021, I received lawfully a cache of Frances Haugen's documents that she had taken from Facebook. And much like her, once I saw what was in the documents, I realized I have a public obligation to ensure that journalists and researchers across the world understand what's happening in these papers. And there was an unfortunate turn of events at the end of that October where the dean himself had invited me to talk to a group of donors via Zoom conference. And 
because the news of the day was about Francis Haugen, and I think I was the only researcher in the world that had seen the documents uh, up close, I did say on that donor call that I had the documents and I believed they were the most important documents in internet history. And what followed from that uh, was terrible. There was a Facebook executive on the call. He challenged me in front of all these other donors. It was obviously very embarrassing for the school in that moment. And from then on, I was barred from spending the money that I had already raised. I had $4.5 million in the bank at Harvard, and I couldn't get a junior staff member hired to help with events. I couldn't do a podcast because the dean had decided that he wasn't going to allow any kind of project or expenditure that raised my public profile at that point. So my colleagues and I had been very suspicious about Facebook's relationship to what was happening to me. Uh, and the more I pressed colleagues about this, trying to get better understanding, the more I was isolated at Harvard to the point where uh, at the end of it, um, it's a bit contentious. Uh, Harvard says they didn't fire me, but I received a letter this summer that said, I'm no longer allowed to do research. They're not gonna let me access my research budgets. They're terminating my team. They're terminating my employment as a research director, but I can still teach. I can come in and be an adjunct lecturer for one class, which is essentially a part-time salary with no benefits. And so I believe I was terminated because I had proceeded with this Facebook project. And Francis Hogan, of course, is the Facebook whistleblower. Exactly. So let's go ahead and, and, and pull up Harvard's response to your whistleblower complaint. And I want to read it verbatim. Quote, the allegations of unfair treatment and donor interference are false. The narrative is full of inaccuracies and baseless insinuations, particularly the suggestion that Harvard Kennedy School allowed Facebook to dictate its approach to research. By longstanding policy to uphold academic standard, all research projects at Harvard Kennedy School need to be led by faculty members. Joan Donovan was hired as a staff member, not a faculty member, to manage a media manipulation project. When the original faculty leader of the project left Harvard, the school tried for some time to identify another faculty member who had time and interest to lead the project. After that effort did not succeed, the project was given more than a year to wind down. Joan Donovan was not fired, and most members of the research team chose to remain at the school in new roles. When I read that statement, one question that I have, and we went on the Shorenstein Center website for the project, and your <laughs> name is front and center up there at the top. Who was the faculty member leading? The project. So th this is what's interesting is I was hired in December 18 uh, in December 2018 to be a project lead, a project director. And I invented my own project. I named it. I have all of the recruitment emails that went back and forth. They recruited me for six months before I took the job. And there was no faculty member that was in charge of my project uh, because the project didn't exist before I arrived. The other thing that is really confusing for me is every time I did say I'm going to leave and take a position in another university, I got a raise or a promotion. And everybody was well aware that I didn't have tenure and I didn't have, uh, I was a, I was a adjunct lecturer, which is considered faculty. Um, so there's issue there with the way I was coded because I was also research staff. 
But the important point, I think, is that they're not making any specific refutations. I'm sure there is no professor that would step forward and say that they were offered to run my project because what Harvard knew is if I wasn't in charge of my research money and I wasn't in charge of my team, I would leave. Uh, the other thing that's confounding about their statement uh, is something that's come up in the press since then, which Dean Elmendorf has doubled down that research staff don't have academic freedom. Now, if anything in my disclosure kept me up late at night was the description of the one-on-one -on -one meeting I had with Dean Elmendorf, where I make the claim that he intimidated me by saying I don't have academic freedom, which meant to me if I proceeded with the Facebook project, I could be personally liable. He's since doubled down on that in the Harvard Crimson and in WAPO, suggesting that that is the rule at Harvard. This raises huge concerns for the over 6,000 uh, academic research staff that publish at Harvard that aren't faculty. I believe that that is one of the crucial things that come out of this uh, whistleblower complaint especially. Uh, we also talked about the, top, the timing of all this at the top of, of the, the segment, and a representative for Chan Zuckerberg Initiative told NBC News that their group had no role in your departure from Harvard, so we, we want to get that on the record mm -hmm. as well. I want to ask you something about what you said about academic freedom. Was yeah. your level of academic freedom the same before all of this happened as it was after? Absolutely not. I, at the beginning, I was... Um, treated like the golden goose. I was allowed to run my research project. I was allowed to hire who I wanted to hire. I brought in uh, gifts and grants totaling $12 million. I actually had a written waiver from Harvard leadership saying that I was allowed to run my own projects. Um, and so these complaints about what happened to me from, from their point of view, I see a distinct difference after October 2021 when I started this project. Following that, the dean told me that I couldn't have certain staff, I couldn't have a podcast, I couldn't do anything that increased my public engagement. Um, he banned me from hiring, he banned me from fundraising, uh, so it, he banned me from hosting conferences. This is implications not just for my academic freedom because he was uh, squashing the work that I was trying to do and gutting my team. Even the claim that most of my employees decided to stay. I had 40 employees at the height of my program. When I left, I had about six and four of them decided to stay at Harvard. But they're not doing research on disinformation and they're not doing research about Facebook. So does that concern you that Harvard uh, I know, because I think someone is maybe watching at home right now going, oh, great. So some professor is arguing with Harvard about mm -hmm. something that I don't even really know how this impacts me on a day to day yeah. basis. Does the fact that they are not doing this project and that there might be a chill on other professors and other folks who are researching this, how does that impact the person at home? What do you think? the, the So my is? research um, was being used by uh, national security experts, politicians and policymakers to create policies and regulations that would um, require different rules about social media. I have been known for my training of journalists who then have a way of critiquing and understanding tech beyond innovation. So I've trained over a thousand journalists in how to do this kind of research that digs into the design of platforms themselves. But also, we need to raise awareness in the public that these are not anodyne technologies, that they are built to 
bring you into a whole other world. And especially with the Mass AG's investigation into Meta and Instagram, what what the Mass AG is alleging and that the Facebook documents show is that teens suffer the most from the way in which Instagram is designed to bring them in to uh, create um, almost anxiety around social comparison and look at what everybody else is doing and then my life is so boring, I just go to high school, right? And so at issue for the everyday person is that this research was not conducted uh, on what Facebook knew were harms to their platform. And then we didn't get the kind of expertise that we need to have behind the legislation and the, and the attorney general's complaint. But I wanna to come to now, we are, we are mm -hmm. headed into 2024. What are your biggest concerns when it comes to, to the primary season and ultimately to the presidential election in November? Yeah, we are in for an onslaught of disinformation, especially because Twitter has changed ownership and Musk has returned many flagrant bad actors to the, uh, to, the, to the platform, but also has made it lucrative mm. to engage in outrageous or defamatory and even hate speech because you can get profit shares from the amount of engagement you have as long as you're a registered uh, paying customer of Twitter. What we also know about Facebook is they've done everything they can to make it, it, it nearly impossible for outside researchers to look at their platform. Last year, the year before, Laura Edelson at NYU had devised a program uh, software to look at Facebook and how different users get different ads. When Facebook found out that she was doing this research, even though she had consent of the users, they shut her down at NYU. And so, um, What's important here is that we understand that tech companies are one of the biggest, if not the biggest lobby on the Hill, and that they're using academic research as a wing of their own PR. And so we have to be, as researchers and as academics, we have to be above the fray. We have to be in a position where we can't be bought. And that requires the university to say, you as an academic are telling the truth and we support you and if a lawsuit comes, we will protect you. It's cowardice to tell a researcher they're not protected by academic freedom even though they've recruited you without tenure and without a faculty standing. They've let you raise $12 million without tenure and faculty standing and they've let you run your team the way you wanna run your team without these levels of status. I am calling for an investigation into understanding how Facebook and Harvard in particular interact. I think the other thing that um, is confounding about all of this, it's not just the case that Facebook and Chan Zuckerberg gave 500 million to Harvard, but also that Dean Elmendorf himself was, had close personal relationships with Sheryl Sandberg who in 1991 was his student. And four days before he told me he was shutting down my research project, he was being photographed at her wedding uh, for People Magazine in Wyoming. And so it's very clear to me that I had upset Facebook. He continued to have a close relationship with them. And because of my status at the university, he was able to shut me down in numerous ways. Right. Cheryl Sandberg, of course, with uh, Facebook. Yeah, she was at Facebook. Dr. Donovan, thank you so much for, for taking the time to, to mm -hmm. walk us through all of this. Of course, we're going to continue to follow this story as it develops. All right, so in, in just looking at the 2024 election, 
Did anything scare you about what Dr. Donovan had to say? Yes, <laughs> just about everything uh, yes. she said uh, scared me. And, um, you know, it's almost as if uh, the social media is this virus. I don't, it might be too close to COVID to, to use as an example, but just when we think we get a handle on it, it mutates and then we have this whole new problem that we have to deal with. The, um, it sounds as if uh, our Congress, our lawmakers are still way behind keeping up and people are still uh, susceptible to things that they hear and see. And it's almost uh, impossible to blame the receiver of the information when we have a hard time telling if something is uh, a deep fake, if something is real or if something was spliced together or if something is recent. You know, sometimes we see clips and it's from 10 years ago, but it's been enhanced to look as if it's current. So it just, I just feel like we are gonna be overwhelmed by disinformation in 2024. And I also think one of the big unknowns is the role that Elon Musk is going to play. Um, you know, 2016, 2020, you know, folks on the, on the right were, were sort of applauding Donald Trump's ability to be that sort of troller in chief and, and make sort of headway by picking fights with certain people and coming up with fancy, you know, funny memes or funny nicknames. Um, Elon Musk has very much leaned into that, um, picking fights with his critics, anybody who criticizes X or, or any of his companies, um, whether it's him amplifying anti-Semitic tweets um, or um, replatforming some of the folks who were kicked off the platform, thinking of guys like Alex Jones. I do wonder what role he could ultimately play um, in 2024 because he, like it or not, for better or worse, pulls the strings at X. Mm -hmm. um, and I think his ego, I think, is, is, is such that he is going to sort of want to be maybe that kingmaker role as he sees it. Um, so I think that's another sort of, and you heard her allude to it in our, in our interview, just sort of how he sort of monetized mm -hmm. trolling. Mm -hmm. um, engagements equal more money, and so the more outlandish you can be on X, the more money you, you, can, you can make and, and thus more advertisers that you can possibly get, although they are sort of flocking away from him. Um, so that, that I think is my sort of biggest um, curiosity moving forward with, with 2024 and, and what sort of misinformation and disinformation we'll see out there. And it's, like you said, it's hard for, for us as journalists to know what's real and okay, if a deep fake comes out and it starts getting a bunch of play on social media, is it newsworthy enough for you to have to address it, which ultimately amplifies, amplifies it. it. Right. Um, so and that's it. Yeah, that's a dilemma that we're in. And also, you know, lots of folks like to say, well, not everyone is on Twitter or X and mm. it's a small number of people compared to other things. But the reality is it's not how many people are on X. It's who is on X mm. and who's connecting on X and who is um, uh, sharing this information. So it's yeah, it's yeah, I, I, again, it's an, uh, an upside down world. We yeah. don't know what's what 2024 is going to hold. All right, last topic, uh, they've finally done it. After years of promising to impeach Joe Biden, the Republicans take their first step, and even though they were already doing an impeachment inquiry, now it's official. They've officially voted on it. It's, it, it's, it's real. Um, not surprised that, that, that we've arrived at this point. No, but it does. It's so funny that their chaos. I almost forgot about it. Mm. I mean, that, that the impeachment, as you said, they've been working on this investigation, which has found no has found nothing. There's mm. been no evidence that Joe Biden received any money, was involved in. It just didn't happen. Mm. It's not even like they're trying to prove something. They can't find anything that they're trying to prove. 
And I sort of forgot about it with all the, the congressional chaos. Mm -hmm. It's nice to see they can agree, and they got yeah. along. See, they agree on that. But I, I, um, I really think that there's an opportunity for this to really backfire for the Republicans, because in the end, as Hunter Biden said uh, you know, the other day, uh, what my dad is going to be guilty of is being a loving father. And I think anyone who is in relationships or has family or friends who are struggling with uh, um, um, a disorder of addiction, uh, they certainly understand the behavior that Hunter Biden uh, has admitted to and has been engaged in and what toll that would take on a family, regardless of whether your dad was a senator, vice president, or president. So I think there's a danger here that going after uh, Joe Biden to impeach him with no evidence and no nothing is going to end up making him look like father of the year. And I, we've also, you know, as soon as the vote happened, um, the investigator, investigative reporters at a, a bunch of media outlets found an old clip of Mike Johnson during the Trump impeachment who said the election is 11 months away. Let's not impeach. Um, let's let the voters decide. Here we are. Here we are again. You know, it's like Barack Obama yeah. all over again with Supreme Court justices. The hypocrisy of, of, of the House and Senate mostly the Republicans, is always inspiring to me that they can just say one thing and then not long later say the exact opposite. Yeah, yeah. So we'll be, we'll be monitoring that over the course of, 20, course of 2024. But, but as you said, they said we have evidence and reason to believe that, that Joe Biden was directly benefiting from, from Hunter's actions. We need to launch an impeachment inquiry. We need to launch an impeachment inquiry because we need to find the evidence that we said we were launching the impeachment inquiry for. So... As you said, everything is sort of upside down in, in Washington, D.C. Um, and I, I just think I, I keep coming back. Um, I believe it was it was Congressman Chip Roy out of Texas who stood in the House floor on the House floor and said, can any Republican tell me one thing that we have done to make life better for the American people? Nope. And it was crickets. Yeah. Um, and so this is what I guess they are choosing to spend their time on. But at the same time, we've got Ukraine funding, Israel funding. Uh, that that is being and the shutdown, over, the looming government the looming shutdown. shutdown as well. So they've got plenty to do. Right. Let's hope that they can walk, chew gum, and impeach at the same time. And they time. have a, you know, I, to bring it back to politics, they have a presidential election happening in 2024. You want to show that your party can do what it is your party says it's going to do. Mm. It, it, that's it. If you're a Republican, you want smaller government, you want to show you can work together, you want to, you know, support your candidate. And meanwhile, they're fighting amongst each other. And so even those who support Trump are fighting among yeah. each other. So. so. It'll be interesting to see. All right, that's it for this week's edition of Taking Issue. As always, we appreciate you listening, watching. Of course, you can see us every Sunday morning on NBC10 Boston's At Issue at 1130, right after Meet the Press. For Sue O'Connell, I'm Corey Smith. We will talk to you next week.